is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to dip into Shark Tank because it's a great show, and it's about everything we love about America. Free enterprise, starting businesses, winning, losing. Well, Stephen Chen is in the Shark Tank in this segment, dog by his side with his product called Pet Gnostics. My name is Steven Chen. This here is Austin. I am the founder of Petnostics, and I'm here today seeking $300,000 in exchange for 10% of my company. Wow. What is Petnostics? We all love our pets like our children, and it's important to monitor their health regularly. Unlike children, though, our pets cannot talk to us, and that's why I started Petnostics. Petnostics allows you to check your pet's health instantly by analyzing your dog or cat's urine with your smartphone. (laughs) So let's pretend that this blue liquid is Austin's urine. So here we have Austin's sample in the Petnostics cup, which has a special lid that's integrated with the same chemical test strips that vets use in their clinics. Once you get your pet's urine in our cup, simply screw on the lid and flip the cup over. These test pads will then change colors depending on your pet's health, and our app will scan the cup and analyze the color changes, telling you about possible health issues. Uh, gross. <laughs> so it comes down to sample time, and guest shark Ashton Kutcher has an obvious question. How do you collect the dog pee? Austin and I would like to know if urine. Urine? Oh, <laughs> oh no. Um, I have samples here for you today, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you may have. He's the cutest dog. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Steve, can I ask you a question? Yes. How do you capture the urine sample? (laughs) It's a good question. Very good question. So pet parents know that pets relieve themselves on schedule. So for me and Austin, when I'm walking him, I know when he's about to pee, I just get the cup behind him, and I'm able to get the sample that way. (laughs) You have to step the cup (laughs) under your dog and letting your dog piss in your hand and the cup to capture the sample. They give you a glove. (laughs) For pet parents that have a little bit more trouble collecting the urine, we have the... Petnostics urine collector. <laughs> it's a little ladle with an extendable handle. And so like a selfie for stick. female dogs, or yeah, you, and so when Austin, if, if there's a female dog and they um, squat, you can just kind of you know get underneath there and get the urine that way. How much do you actually need to capture for you the diagnostics a, to work? Just a little teeny bit, yeah, for the strips to change color. Oh, that's so good. Well, you know, from this mirthful moment. Mr. Wonderful, well, he wants to get down to business. What does it cost the consumer to do all this stuff and get all the paraphernalia for pee collection? We retail the cups for $10. What no, does yeah, it cost you? It costs me $2 right now to make one of these. How low do you think you can get it at volume? Um, we think we can get our cost down to about 90 cents. It's a one-time lab, right? It's a one-time use cup. Okay. Right. How many cups have you sold it to how many customers? So cups, we've sold about 10,000 cups. What? Well, in what period of time? When did you start? We started in April 2014. How have you sold them? So we've sold right now just through our website and through local retail stores in Southern California. It's very impressive. And so the leading vets, they liken our product to a check engine light. You know, see, oh, if there's something wrong potentially under the hood, then you still have to have the expert, the vet, take care of it. Well, before anyone hears sales numbers, Robert, jump ship. I'm not sold on the business model. Vets want to make more money, not less money. Mm-hmm. I believe in this product, but I also have to really believe in a very clear distribution channel. Mm -hmm. I think you're early. I'm out. Okay. Thank you. Steven gives us his sales projections. Mr. Wonderful 
smells weakness or pee. We're projecting $200,000 in sales this year. Okay, so you're not making any money yet. So next year, we're projecting hopefully $400,000 in sales with these new specific disease tests. That's, that market makes up 590 million um, tests that potentially can be done. But it's not clear yet, Stephen, what the go-to-market distribution strategy is. We're talking about vets, direct sales online, maybe retail if you can find enough margin. Mm-hmm. That's not clear yet. These are all to be determined, right? Yes. There's a bit of risk in your deal in terms of what's going to happen. You're a little pre-revenue-ish. Mm-hmm. You know, what I love about Shark Tank deals is when it's already proven what the channel is going to work, I pour $300,000 on it. It's just like gasoline on fire. It explodes. You're not there yet. Okay. Ouch. Mark Cuban is out. Here's why. I'm very involved on the human side. I've got an investment in a company called Biomin that does blood um, analysis. My point is that being strip-driven, I think, will have a, a, a life cycle. I just don't see it as a long-term life cycle. I see that as a problem. I'm out. Okay. Thank you. Ouch. Well, what about Ashton? He doesn't want to get his hands wet. My biggest concern is still around the very first question that we had around collection. I think that you're going to be disrupted by a bunch of other platforms that can do the same thing that you do without the messiness of having to do a urine sample. (laughs) And so for that reason, I'm out. Thank you. We all know that Mr. Wonderful isn't afraid to get a little dog urine on his hands if there's a profit to be made. Well, here's what he has to offer. I'm more concerned about distribution risk, how you blow this thing out so you sell a few million dollars of it. Mm-hmm. I want to reflect that in my offer. I'll do the 300000 for 15%. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. You know, Kevin... I watch the show a lot. Your deals always have ratchets, levers. You have some loyalty, <laughs> some plug-in. No, I'm really good at that. I'm the most creative shark instructor. Uh, Mark's learning from me all the time. You can call it creative. I'm learning what not to I do. Call it, I call it founder abuse, but you yeah. call it creative. I, I, I'm really curious about why you're offering a straight equity deal on this. I do them occasionally, but I think this is a play on trying to figure out which channel works and then pouring gasoline on it. QVC Queen Lori has an offer of her own. I've sold a lot of products over the last 18 years, and I have seen so many people spend so much on their pets, and they want to make sure that they're okay. I'm going to make you an offer. 300000 for 20%. Well, between Kevin and Lori, who will get this deal? Would you consider 300000 for 15%? Ooh, echoing Kevin's offer, Lori. I feel at 15%, you know, as much as I really do love this and I think it's a great product, and my. Queen, come here for a second. The king is speaking. uh, If you want to split the deal, I'll do 50 50 for 20%. 20%. This is is because you didn't move fast enough in some ways. 20%. 50 50, king and queen. And you had 15. Queen and Joker. It's the only offer on the table now. I'm in. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good present. And I get the dog. Thank you so much. Good idea. Thank you so much. And another great Shake Shark. Shark Tank, not Shake Tank. And we got to take a potty break. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and recently our producer, Jesse, visited an air show. You really don't need much more of an explanation than that. Take it away, Jesse. 
There aren't many events quite as all-American as a good old-fashioned American air show. The 4th of July is pretty kick-ass, mostly because it's the only holiday where there are no gifts to exchange and the only things you spend money on are consumed, inhaled, or blown up. But at an air show, an air show is a celebration of the greatest machines that God gave man the inspiration to create. Oh, crap. We're at the Memphis Air Show. The year? Not important. Because like an all-American air show, our American stories are timeless. Like a shining city on the hill, a last bastion of linguistic and intellectual freedom in an age of conformity and cynicism. I'm, I'm sorry, it's the music mixed with the smell of jet fuel. It always gets me a little excited. I picked the wrong week, quit sniffing blue. The U.S. Navy Blue Angels are here with their F-18 Hornets, along with a U.S. Air Force F-16 Viper demonstration, a jet-propelled semi-truck that reaches over 300 miles per hour while shooting out giant fireballs, a Navy SEAL skydiving team, a P-51 Mustang, a Corsair, a B-17 Flying Fortress, and several stunt pilots. We've also been told that somewhere on this airfield today will be the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill, also known as the world's largest Largest barbecue barbecue grill. grill. I've got to see this. I must eat off this grill. I will eat off of this grill. Because I'm a good boy. I am a good boy. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? Anyways, just when I thought the air show was about to begin... I was taken by surprise when... Welcome the Canadians, ladies and gentlemen. I would ask that you all rise now and remove your caps and join them in the Canadian National Anthem. The Canadian National what? The Canadian National Anthem. We are in the company of the Canadian Forces Snowbirds Demonstration Jet Team and the Canadian Forces CF-18 Hornet Demo Team as well. All right, so we're sitting on this old Navy airfield just north of Memphis. And there before me were Americans standing at attention as the Canadian National Anthem was played. That was a first. A tip of the hat to America's hat. Our Canadian friends indeed. This particular air show season, the Canadian Forces Snowbirds Demonstration Jet Team will commemorate the 75th anniversary of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, the joint air crew training program launched by Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand during World War II. Its contribution to the Second World War air effort and the Allied victory was an important chapter in Canada's history. Like the big jerk that I am, I forgot that this event might be cash only for things like food and beer. So I was standing in line at the ATM when our national anthem began to play. So I turned my back to the ATM and stood at attention with everyone else. Now, normally I wouldn't be talking over our national anthem, but in this case, uh, for production purposes, I I need to. But forgive me. To be fair, there were Navy SEAL skydivers falling from the sky with a giant American flag while this girl was singing. So it's not like there weren't any distractions. I feel like I'm explaining this a bit too much, but you get the point.
The air show is now underway with a stunt pilot right out of the gate. Just listen to the sound of that engine, the sound of the announcer and the crowd. If that's not one of the ultimate sounds of summertime in America, I don't know what is. You can almost smell those hot dogs cooking in the background, can't you? That reminds me, the world's largest barbecue grill is somewhere out here. I should go look for it. But uh, first things first, I finally got some cash, so I'm heading over to the beer tent. It's 11 a.m., but who cares? I'm at an air show, and this is America, damn it. Two bucks? And uh, don't judge me by my beer choice. It was either Budweiser or like Michelob Ultra, so I had to make a choice. There were no micro brews or IPAs to choose from, but I'm not complaining. And then there it was. The world's largest barbecue, the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill. It's big, and it is beautiful. Just look at it. Well, you can't because I'm the idiot who records audio at an air show. Just imagine a grill the size of a semi-trailer, because it is a semi-trailer. This massive grill is literally pulled around behind a semi-truck all over the country. The Big Taste Grill is 20 feet tall, a whopping 65 feet long, and 6 feet in diameter. Just to park this thing, you need a space that is 20 by 90 feet. Let's head over to talk to someone and ask for free food. What was your name? Susie. Susie. Yeah. Why can you tell me about this grill? Well, um, this grill is 65 feet long. It is the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill. It's the world's largest traveling grill. We can do 750 brats at once, so in an hour we can do 2,500 brats. Um, the lid alone on this weighs over 5,000 pounds. The whole grill weighs over 53,000 pounds. Wow. Do you guys just go from uh, air show to air show, or do you take all the events? And... We, um, we do other events. We are out on the road for eight months, and this is our 23rd year out on the road with this big Johnsonville Big Taste Grill. 23 so, years. 23 years. Uh, we do NASCAR races, Monday night football games. We do air shows, country music festivals. We also do like grand openings at grocery stores. We do corporate lunches. Um, so we get to meet a lot of people and get to promote Johnsonville products. Nice. So how long have you been with the company? Um, this is my second year with Johnsonville. Oh. And... Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, just in case you forgot, we're in an air show, and that was an F-16 that just flew over. You can hear from my reaction that I was dumbstruck, mouth agape, laughing like a little schoolgirl because an airplane just flew over. <laughs> Back to Susie with the world's largest traveling barbecue grill. Um, so this is the 23rd season out, and I am the first woman grill master in 23 years. Wow, grill master. How do you get that title? Well, I think a lot of it comes from me living in uh, in Wisconsin, and I was raised on Johnsonville products all my life. So, And I just I love meeting people and spreading the Johnsonville joy. Nice. You guys just cook on this thing all day long, or yes? So um, can I get a free sample? You can get a free sample. Nice. We'll get you hooked up with one, definitely. <laughs> right. um, another big thing with us is when we travel, every event we're at, we uh, have a local charity come and work with us, and then they get part of the proceeds. So this is the 23rd season out, like I said, and Johnsonville has donated over four million dollars to charities all over the U.S. I saw some. You guys had some dancers out here earlier. Who, who are they? So this weekend's charity is the. Millington Central High School cheerleaders. So the whole crew is out here. They're doing some really cool cheers that actually have 
they have put Johnsonville and the word bratwurst in these cheers and they're out here cheering and having a good time and they're working. Um, the proceeds that they raise this weekend will go towards new uniforms for them. <laughs> It is, isn't it? Well, can you tell us about Johnsonville? Do you know anything about the, the company, the, the history? Yes, so it is all family owned. Um, this is their 71st year of making sausage, and they actually ventured out into doing fully flame grilled chicken breasts as well now. So they're brand new, they just came out this spring. Um, if you ever get to see any of our new commercials on TV, they are all employee employees' ideas. So that's pretty cool. Um, it's kind of tricky for radio interviews. Yes, very tricky, very, very noisy, but it is spectacular out here. And you have to admit, standing on top of the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill, you get the most amazing view. What do we got going on down here? Um, Who are these so, girls? So these are the cheer, some of the cheerleaders uh-huh. from the Millington Central High School. Hi. 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 recap for just a second. We're at the Memphis Air Show standing on the world's largest traveling barbecue grill, the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill. F-16s are flying overhead. I've got a beer in my hand. It's about 70 degrees outside and I'm about to get free food. Oh, and there's cheerleaders. I'd say it's a pretty good day at the Memphis Air Show, to say the least. When we come back, we'll listen to the sounds of the P-51 Mustang and talk to its pilot. We'll also talk to some veterans about air shows and we'll meet the U.S. Navy Blue Angels as we listen to the sounds of their incredible F-A-18 Hornet aircraft. This is Our American Stories. And now we continue our day at the air show with our gonzo producer, Jesse. We're at the Memphis Air Show, and you're listening to the sound of the P-51 Mustang. And again, you hear this Royce The P-51 Mustang is an American-made, long-range, single-seat fighter aircraft primarily engaged in service during World War II, designed and built by North American Aviation. The first Mustangs were used by the Royal Air Force as tactical reconnaissance aircraft and fighter bombers. The P-51 is powered by the Packard V-1650-7, a licensed-built version of the Rolls-Royce Merlin 60-series two-stage, two-speed supercharged engine. This engine made the aircraft capable of being used as a long-range bomber escort. During wartime, the aircraft was armed with six 50-caliber M2 Browning machine guns. This P-51 Mustang demonstration is flown by Scott Scooter Yoke, who, with his late father Bill, spent 13 years meticulously restoring the Quicksilver. Here's Scott Scooter Yoke, the pilot, sharing the details of this beautiful warplane with us. 
This is a uh, World War II fighter plane. It was designed to escort the bombers all the way to Berlin and back in the European theater as well as the Pacific Islands. It escorted the B-29 bombers to Japan and back from Tinian. And uh, this aircraft was a 15-year restoration by myself and my father and our company. And this is what we do for a living is fly these around and build them. The big difference with this, with this 51 and other 51s is uh, every marking and every insignia on this aircraft actually represents something. It wasn't just put on there for aesthetically pleasing designs or any of that other kind of stuff. Every, every piece of paint, every marking, every uh, bit of, bit of uh, design work on it stands for something and represents our, our veterans and those that gave the ultimate sacrifice. These are D-Day stripes, so these were to um, show the Allied forces who was good guys and who was bad guys. If you flew with these on June June 6, 1944, you were a good guy. If you didn't, it means you had to shoot it down because that's not that's not the it's uh, uh, not the guy that plays for your side. It was time to walk around a little bit to see what the crowd was like when I spotted an old timer wearing one of those U.S. Navy hats adorned with pins and buttons from the ships and campaigns he obviously had served in. While standing next to his wife, I asked him what these air shows mean to him. That's when we have the proudest. Seems like it. It's like a we blossom our pride when we come to these shows. I've gone to them. I don't know ever since I was in the Navy back in the '60s. You know, I'm a Vietnam and Korean veteran. And, I saw them over there. They come over there and do the shows, you know. Yeah. And of course, we uh, got a place down at Dolphin Island. We watch them when we want to, just practice. The Blues practice down there about three times a week in Pensacola. Yeah. And we're close enough. We can go watch them practice in the morning, just like coming to the show. You could ask her. I wear her out. <laughs> <laughs> does, he wear, does he wear you out a little bit? Nah. No. No. <laughs> the shows. What's your name, sir? Luther Brackeen. Mr. Brackeen, thank you for your service, sir. Thank you. Appreciate you it. Have a great day. Thank you. Old War vets like Mr. Luther Brackeen here were all over the air show. I also noticed some men and women sporting biker jackets, so I figured I should say hello. Turns out the group is the Combat Veterans Motorcycle Association. One of their members, Janet Murdoch, was kind enough to tell me how their organization operates. What it is is it's all vets helping vets. Everything that we raise goes back into the veterans. We are currently in the process of building the West Tennessee Veterans Home right out in Arlington, which is not far from this area. It will be for amputees, for our veterans coming back with neurological problems, and it's going to be a fabulous facility. We currently get back to the West Tennessee Veterans Home. We also have the cemetery, and we actually donate $1,500 to that every year, directly to the local one. We don't just go to some website and say, Okay, there's your money. No, we take it directly to them, and it helps for the maintenance of the cemetery. There are a lot of veterans to talk to at these air shows, and they like talking to people to share their story. While some veterans might hesitate to share a painful story, I've always found that a majority of veterans seem to find some amount of excitement to share where they've been or what they've seen. Just say hello to one of them. It'll make their day, and yours as well. This next guy, however... Let's just say I don't think I made his day. So I saw him wiping down the underside of this parked B-17 Flying Fortress. Let me repeat that. I saw him, with my own eyes, wiping down the underside of the airplane. So I walk up to this guy. What do you think I ask him first? So you're wiping down the plane there, huh? Oh, yeah. Groundbreaking, cutting-edge journalism, right? Ask the man if he's doing what he's obviously doing. So you're wiping down the plane there, huh? Oh, yeah. 
And if that's not bad enough, you should hear my terrible follow-up question. So you're wiping down the plane there, huh? Oh, yeah. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? Oh, man, this is so embarrassing. I've got to call myself out over this one. I see a guy wiping down a plane. I ask him if he's wiping down the plane. He confirms he's wiping down the plane, so then I ask him what he's doing. Again. So you're wiping down the plane there, huh? Oh, yeah. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? Oh, it's terrible. All right, before I bother this guy any further, his name was Steve, by the way. He was piloting this B-17. I asked him what these air shows mean to him. I have to say more than anything, getting to share the airplanes is the best part of it. You know, we can't hog these things. You know, they belong to everybody, in a sense. So, you know, we're fortunate in the fact that we get to fly them and maintain them and be directly involved with them. But, you know, the general public doesn't get that opportunity unless we bring the airplane to them and and share it and show it to them. They'll never really get a chance to see it, at least many of them won't. So I'd say that's probably number one, is just getting to share the airplane to so many people who don't know anything about it, or their granddad was shot down in one or something like that, and they heard the stories, but they never never knew anything firsthand about it. So I think that's the best part, is just, just getting to share the airplane. And now it was time for the main event, the U.S. Navy Blue Angels. The Blue Angels team was formed in 1946, and six demonstration pilots currently fly the McDonnell Douglas FA-18 Hornet, typically in more than 70 shows at 34 locations throughout the United States each year, where they still employ many of the same practices and techniques used in their aerial displays in their inaugural 1946 season. An estimated 11 million spectators view the squadron during their air shows each full year. Here's Blue Angel pilot Lieutenant Ryan Chamberlain walking us around his Blue Angels FA-18 Hornet. Here is the uh, F-18 Hornet. There's all kinds of uh, various panels throughout, uh, throughout the, uh, the right and left side of the jet. One of the, the unique things about the Blue Angel jets is they have no weapon stations on them. So you see the missile rails, right. there's actually two hard points on each wing. Uh, the cheek stations, uh, where you can kind of see that's cut out there, that's uh, also a, a missile station. And then there's a, an ability to have a drop tank in the middle. All of that stuff has been removed, and you see what you have in front of you, which is a nice, shiny blue and yellow airplane. And here's Blue Angels pilot Lieutenant Matt Satteroud when I asked asked him how he became a Blue Angel. Well, my, my dad was always interested in, in aviation. He didn't become a pilot, but he, he sort of fostered that interest in myself and my brother. And uh, we grew up seeing airplanes fly around and just uh, going to air shows and stuff in Hawaii. And uh, met, we saw the Blue Angels when we were three for the first time and kind of sparked that interest. Uh, went to St. Louis University uh, to fly, uh, pursue an aviation career, and decided after 9-11 that we really wanted to be in the military. So we watched these Blue Angels do what they do best. Screaming through the sky with laser-like precision in these multi-million dollar war jets turned into a family-friendly spectacle of grand proportions. I could watch these guys fly all day long and never get bored. It's the sound, the smell, the sights, the people, the food, the patriotism, the shock and awe and wonder on the face of every child, grown-up and senior citizen alike when that F-16 splits open the sky above our heads. We all smile. And in this day and age of our safe and quiet and timid forms of family entertainment, it's awesome to get out and show the wife and kids what real power looks and feels like. These pilots are living out their dreams, and they're also risking their lives to entertain us in a very unusual way when you think about it. Watching airplanes for fun. I can't think of very many ways to spend a better afternoon. Can you? For Our American Stories at the Memphis Air Show, I'm Jesse Edwards.
And great job as always, Jesse. And remember, when you look up in the sky, not a single U.S. soldier has been killed by an enemy plane since 1952. So all of our men around the world protecting us on the ground, thanks to the American taxpayer and for all those pilots risking their lives. Our guys don't have to look up. They just have to look around. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here about love, about loss, about business, about risk-taking, history. And this one comes from a friend of Faith's, and she shares an important subject that is often avoided. Here is Mimi's story. It's always odd to talk about yourself. With you, you're sort of forced to take this perspective that seems arrogant if you say good things and self-deprecating and weak if you don't. And no one likes to feel weak or out of control. Growing up, I was raised by a mother who told me never to show weakness, that other people always deserve your best and nothing less. This is an excellent strategy for planning a cocktail party. And my mom is the queen of parties, ask anyone. (laughs) But not as effective for managing human emotions. Appearances were always kept up in my house, and I really tried to be this perfect, amazing, wonderful, in-control human. And in my house, that equated to being thin. I was a ballet dancer since I could walk. I pursued the career professionally and had many successes until I quit at age 19. I quit because the director of a very famous ballet company told me that although my technique was flawless, my artistry incomparable to anyone else my age, and I had a long, successful career ahead of me, I needed to lose at least 15 to 20 pounds, and my breasts were too large and distracting, I should consider getting them surgically reduced. And at that moment... 15 years of 40 hours a week or more of dancing, conditioning, crying, starving myself, throwing up until I had to get a root canal because of tooth decay, were just thrown away. He only saw me as my weight and nothing else. And keep in mind that I was very, very thin at the time. Actually about 40 pounds thinner than I am right now, and right now I'm at a very healthy weight. Something inside me just broke. I felt like I was fighting to fit into the mold of the prima ballerina, ace bandaging my breasts down in tutus a la Hilary Swank and about a boy, starving, self-harming, suicide attempts, depression. Everything just came crashing down at that moment, and it was all for nothing. I quit right then and never, ever stepped into a ballet studio again. And I haven't to this day at 24 years old. My mom stayed in bed for a month. I remember counting calories at 10 years old, tying a bathrobe around my waist so tight that I couldn't breathe to try to make my waist smaller, 
pushing my chest against the ground to try and flatten (laughs) my boobs after I suddenly got double D's during puberty (laughs) and turning the bathtub on full blast to cover up the sounds of my vomiting at my dinner. I guess you could say that I was anorexic and bulimic starting at age 13 until about 20. I never sought official treatment other than the occasional therapy and my extreme dieting was condoned by my mother as a job hazard and necessary to get where I needed to go. I never knew that I had an eating disorder until I was about 18. I thought that starving myself, looking at pictures of emaciated models for hours and hating myself was just a part of my life and career choice. And just let me say really quickly, uh, I love my mother. (laughs) She is an angel. I say these things and share these memories knowing that what she did, she always did out of love and out of her own warped understanding from her own upbringing. She is a strong, creative woman whom I loved very dearly. But I have learned that it is imperative to acknowledge the past if we want to move on. I have always been overtaken by the feeling that I was not good enough, something that I still struggle with today, as many of us do. I have never had a time in my life where I have not been trying to lose weight, sometimes more successfully than others. My lowest weight was horribly low, so unhealthy and terrible. I had three broken bones and fractures because when you don't eat, your bones break. And even then, at my very lowest weight, I remember telling my mom that I thought I looked pregnant in my new white leotard. I wish I could go back and tell my 16-year-old self that this isn't worth it. The lie being sold to you that you will only be happy if you're thin is false. Stop doing this to yourself. But I can't. I can only learn from what happened to me. I am often regretful about abandoning my career as a ballet dancer. I could have easily went with another company. I based my decision on one horrible old-fashioned man. I could have gone with a more contemporary form of dance where they are more accepting of more diverse body types or commercial dancing. But you really do need to let go or be dragged. If you cannot change it, you should not stress over it. My eating disorder was inextricably linked to ballet and my mom. So I thought that once I quit ballet and was spending less time with my mom, I would be okay. And I was very wrong. I never figured out why I hurt myself, why I did what I did. I never acknowledged how sick I was or how distorted my body image was. So... All of those issues still followed me as I tried to live a normal life. My eating disorder and my depression were my comforts. They were familiar. It was all that I knew. I never knew how to eat normally, how to not count my calories and fat grams, how to enjoy food, why I shouldn't be binging and purging every other day, how to not feel guilty about having a cookie, how to see exercise as something beautiful and therapeutic and not as punishment. And it has taken me up until this past year to find some answers. I must say that the body positive movement has impacted me greatly. 
let me end with who I am today. I am a 24-year-old woman who believes that all shapes and sizes are beautiful. There is so much more than what is on the surface. We were not put on this earth to try to fit into a size zero. We were put here to be ourselves and to bring our own unique talents and light to this world. There is an enormous power in positivity. I cannot say this enough. Your thoughts become reality. I know it sounds cheesy, but it is true. And you can thank my boyfriend for that advice. I laughed at him too. As far as recovery goes, I am not a doctor or a therapist. I can only say what I think and what I've experienced. But you have to decide to get better. You have to decide to let go of those comfortable, harmful behaviors. And you need help. You can try to do it alone, but from my experience, you will relapse. Professional help is essential, but building healthy relationships is so important. You always want to isolate yourself with an eating disorder and with other mental illnesses. Those people who care for you will help you stay on track. They will make you feel like a valid human and remind you that you are important and needed in this world. Surround yourself with positivity and work every day to let go of your old thoughts and actions. You will fail. I did. More times than I can count and I'm still failing today. And it's okay to have days when all you do is go to the bathroom and maybe get a snack. It's okay to curl up in your blankets and just hide for a while. It's okay. It's okay to feel what you feel. Just try not to stay there. Also, food is amazing. (laughs) It's so much fun. Such a bonding experience when you're with others. And you'll learn to love it again. You will learn to go clothes shopping without an emotional breakdown. It will take a couple tries, trust me. It's, it's taken me so long and sometimes I still have a rough time. But you will learn that there is nothing wrong with you. It's the clothes. It's a piece of fabric. Don't let it dictate how you feel about yourself. Beauty is arbitrary. It's societally constructed. And you get to define it for yourself. And if anyone else tries to, punch them. Okay, fine. Don't punch them. Educate them. Educate them to question these traditions. Who said women, or men for that matter, have to look a certain way? Who made up these rules? You can, and you will let go of whatever is holding you back. It can be an eating disorder, addiction, bad habits, etc. But make no mistake... I do not believe I will be ever completely rid of my eating disorder. It will always be there, probably until I die, because it became part of me and therefore is who I was. But it's not who I am anymore. You can acknowledge the past without living in it. Take care of yourself and love yourself because you are perfect the way God made you. And thank you for that, Mimi. It took a lot of courage to tell that story. I have a 12-year-old girl, and she's already looking at that mirror and wondering about her body image. Is she thin enough? Is she pretty enough? And this is just an occupational hazard of being a woman. It's also starting to affect young boys as we see more and more photoshops of men with their abs all over the place, and they're thin and they're losing weight. And it's just it's a disturbing trend in America, this self-starvation, and particularly the world of ballet. 
which I got to experience a bit when my sister was young. And it is a brutal world. It looks beautiful on the outside, but the image comportment and having to look like that thin, thin swan is really, really tough. Mimi's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith. We have all made mistakes. Some are big, and some are small. But most of our mistakes, people don't know about. But for some... Everyone can see, especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change, and thankfully they can change for the better. But not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist-related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption, Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang-related and racist tattoos for free. And there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started. I helped start it. I'm not going to take all the credit for it because um, it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face. And he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them. And uh, he was will, and he was willing to pay, you know. But what I told him was, I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger, and, and it's not going to do what you want it to do. And so we discussed lasers. But the bottom line was, I really could see the hurt, you know, that this guy was going through because he had done this, you know, gotten these tattoos, and that he needed. He just wanted to. Uh, do his job and not have people follow him or you know and and i could see that and so my wife kind of looked at me and said you know you can help people and so we made the post and this post that we made i think that was on january something it was mid-january um and we basically said if you have hate or uh racist tattoos gang or racist tattoos that we will, you know, help you remove them, no questions asked, cover them up, whatever. And it went viral. And to the point where, like, I had to turn off notifications on my phone. So did my wife. My wife, she didn't even know what viral meant. She was just like, what's going on? You know, and I was explaining to her, I said, hey, this thing, you, you know, the post you just did, is going viral and she thought she was like how did i get a virus you know like she didn't even know what viral was so they needed some help once that happened i'd say you know we probably got thousand inquiries to uh get help then we saw that that there was a need and we started redemption inc 
um, we had someone help us build the website, and I had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it Random Acts of Tattoo. She kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption Inc. because it was it's less to say than Random Acts of Tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do and name it and... Um, it just, and, and then that took off, actually. This random act of kindness is changing people's lives, giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You know, I, the bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. I, that, that much I can definitely say. You know, how they're feeling, or like a lot of them are, are scared. Because, number one, they're, they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me. And a few of them even travel from far away so far. And, so, and by the way, so far I've helped, personally helped 22 people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two. Yeah, they're, at first they're a little scared. But then once I get them, you know, in my chair, I talk to them like people. And, and you know, I, I get to hear the story behind it. And most of them were... I would have to say, you know, ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves, they need to either, most of them join a gang, and most of them, they were white supremacist gangs, the sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not with somebody, you're usually, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim? When these people have come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards? Yeah, it's a couple of them. Yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and, you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and, and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing. And it, and it does, it definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20 something years of tattooing. You know, people, people do feel that they have to, I guess. And so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody. And so, you know, doing that definitely makes me feel good. Like, I definitely don't have to do it, but I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it. Of course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing. You know, when they come in my shop, the first thing that we do is we make them feel comfortable and, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like, I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not, we're here to, you know, fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media, if they don't want to be involved in that, then I, they're, my first priority is definitely their safety. And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story here on Our American Stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story, and by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. 
And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll try and get them on the air when we come back more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety. A lot of these gangs are even racist people. They're... They get mad when people quit, and, and it really is true. You know, blood in, blood out. Like, a lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today. You know what I mean? Like, like we don't do that. So that they come, when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but we make sure that, Hey, we're here. Here's my hand. Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property. So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stuff, and, you know, they, those guys kind of, I guess it's a, a... a big deal to tag somebody, you know, or I, I, it, it never made sense to me. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend or a dog or, <laughs> you know, like you don't tattoo them and say property up. Like nobody should be property of anybody. And, and you know, these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to. You know, it's almost out of a, a necessity or, or even scare because, they, you know, if they say no, that this then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when, when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done or felt, you know, the shame of, of uh, even hating somebody, you know. And, and I think that's a cool thing. And I'm sorry that they feel that way, but... It's cool that they they do, you know, I'm there to witness and, and to realize, hey, I made a mistake. More of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes. These folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others, but also honest about their desire to change. And many of the stories are actually very similar. I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, the sad thing is they're all, like, they're all, you know, pretty much the same, and and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody, and um, you know of course part of the thing was I didn't want them. You know, if they want to tell me, then they can, but we don't. I don't make anybody say anything. You know, because they've already been judged enough. 
I have so far seen a couple of the people that I've tattooed moved on and, and you know, they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had white power on his arms and one of the kids, Brandon, that I tattooed he's engaged now and getting ready to get married and, and you know he uh he he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo. It was really fun. He, he traveled a little bit to uh, come see us, but he was extremely... Actually, I think he traveled from New York City, but he was extremely nice, and, and you know, when he talked to some of the media people, he, he explained how he felt the shame of, of having to do what he had to do, but if he didn't do that, you know, it was more being a victim again, and, and again... Who wants to be a victim? And these people are truly making attempts to change. But, unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced. It's all been uh, pretty fun, and and, um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that, that, you know... They're about moving on and, and going to school or just moving on with their lives. And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you? Absolutely. I had not clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, it just, wow. <laughs> like even the, the stuff going viral and then, you know... I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because, you know, not everybody. The sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody, there's always going to be somebody that says, hey, that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help. It's sad that, that these people believe that. I didn't want to see those things, so I had to separate myself from it. It's kind of sad. You know, in my mind, Forgiving somebody is is more important, you know, to, and, and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago? Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone? It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually what happened, basically, was the media, some, some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions, that it, it kind of got to me, and, and you know, and it, it kind of gave me a wow moment. Well, you're changing lives. You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because, uh, like, these people... These people, they, they've already done the work, you know what I mean? Like, I, I shouldn't be getting credit for the, what the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step, you know, it, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up, send them on their way, they've already made the changes. They've already done, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles. Let's just say that. I, I, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> I help them remove obstacles. They, I, I believe that the people that, uh, and I truly, really believe that, that they've already done what they needed to do. I didn't help them change. 
they did it themselves. I, I've tried to stay as humble as I possibly can. Like, you know, I have had people come up to me and, you know, like, oh my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, and it, it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face, but like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy, I'm just the last guy in line. And for some reason, I got picked. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> I got picked to be that guy that is, so to speak, helping people and, and when in fact they've done the work already. But someone has to do it. I got to say that someone has to do it. Have you guys expanded? Are there other places doing this? Are you trying to get other places involved? Yes, actually. Yes to all those. Um, when we made the website, we actually got a few other people, you know, that, that would call us up and, um, in fact, on the website, there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help. Say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh, operator in, in a state. Like, if you want to help us, like, we definitely need the help. We definitely appreciate, uh, the, you know, the the, the assistance. Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out and and not saying that i'm better than somebody else i kind of believe that like for example if someone in indiana needs help well of course that's you know pretty far away from maryland and you know they're not going to come here but if i have somebody in, in indiana that can help them then i'll send them to them but i also want to be able you know to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be, give them a good service. So we actually look, look at their websites, look at their work, and hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe. We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption Inc., whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. By the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave and help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys' inmates, my goodness, you got to choose. Sometimes not in a gang, you're going to get beat. you got to pick one. Redemptioninc.org is where you go. Redemption Inc. and that's I N K dot org. And to hear all that we do, go to our American Network dot org. Dave Cutlip's story, Redemption Inc. story here on our American Stories.
And what you were listening to was a rendition of Amazing Grace from Pastor Robert Soto. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we got a great one for you today, and we love talking about, well, individuals' right to push and and promote their own ideas, to worship as they see uh, fit, and government sometimes awkward and sometimes uh, brutal way of stepping into the mix. And we look at that dynamic tension regularly. And joining us is the aforementioned Pastor Robert Soto, a member of the Lipan Apache tribe of Texas, a Christian pastor, and he joins us to talk about not only his fascinating life, but a life that the federal government had something to say about, and it wasn't very pleasant. And we'll also be joined by the lawyer who helped him fight the fight at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, and that is Luke Goodrich. And guys, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, you bet. Uh, Pastor Robert, let's start off with uh, your story first. Uh, tell us about the history, the traditions that you've been helping to keep alive. Tell us a bit about your life and how you got to this place. Well, way, way before I was a Christian, our family used to have these ceremonies out in the wilderness, I guess you could say. It was a coming up spring ceremony. Uh, later on, as the elders died and, and people refused to keep it going, we adopted the powwow as our source of celebration, kind of in remembrance of the of those that had kept our traditions going. And, and so we started having this powwow somewhere about 1970, 1971. Uh, so it's been going on for quite a while. Uh, we always knew that uh, the possession of feathers without the permission of the federal government was uh, was illegal. We've known that all our lives, but unfortunately, you know, we have to sometimes supersede legality when it comes to interfering with our traditions, you know. And the and, and, and so, can I, let me, just to get one thing, the possession of e- eagle feathers is illegal, but was the reason for this that people thought there'd be poachers killing eagles? And tell us about these eagle feathers and where well, they the, came from. The, the reason they're illegal is because supposedly the bird is still under a protection, uh, you know, from, from annihilation, which is not... Um, but but they, uh, they they sort of have all these laws and all these restrictions as to who can possess an eagle feather and who cannot. And this is where the whole concept of religious freedom comes in, because if, you, if the government doesn't recognize you as a legitimate Indian or a Native American, by that it's, it means one belonging to a tribe acknowledged by the federal government. So if you don't belong to a tribe acknowledged by the federal government, then you're not considered a Native American. The only person that can possess a feather is a Native American or person from a tribe acknowledged by the federal government. And the way you get that feather is you have to put in all the paperwork and then wait three to five years to receive that feather. It's kind of the bureaucracy of our government. And so so the, the, the federal government doesn't recognize your tribe. Tell us a little bit about your tribe, because clearly your tribe exists. And the government yeah. says you don't. T- tell us about, you know, the history of your tribe. Well, well at the end, they said, we're not saying that, that Robert Soto is not a Native American. We just say we don't acknowledge him as a tribe. Right. Which is kind of like an oxymoron, but they, they say that one moment you are, and the next moment they're not. Right. And when they took my feathers, uh, they that's exactly what happened. They said, because you're not a Native American, that means one belonging to a tribe that we acknowledge, that you don't have the right to possess these feathers. And because of that, we're going to take them away. And, of course, at that time, I was told I was facing, you know, some prison time and a large fine. And um, 
And so, but but then two weeks later, I I, I when my first lawyers, I proved who I was. I gave them everything they wanted, documentation, and then they come back and say, well, because you're a Native American, we're just not going to pursue persecution. We're not going to find you, and we're not going to send you to prison. So here, two weeks earlier, I wasn't, and two weeks later, I was. And uh, and 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 it just goes to the whole concept of legality. Uh, today in America, there's about 290 tribes that are seeking for acknowledgement. They exist historically. They got all the historical documentation, all the historical evidence. All they need is a stamp approval from the government. But the government, because I guess they don't want any more Indians, it just makes it so difficult to become acknowledged by the federal government. Well, I think one of the things you're getting at, Pastor Robert, is the sheer arbitrariness of these decisions. And here you are doing it you've been doing for a very long time, and you're waiting for some bureaucrat to make up his mind. And one day it's one thing, and another day it's another. The rules keep right. shifting. The line keeps changing. Before we bring on uh, the lawyer and we start to talk about the legalese, just a little bit of backstory here. I mean, I'm, I'm reading here that after Texas became a state in the 1880s, they passed a law forbidding Native Americans from living living there. And, 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 and this is included in your tribute. And most of the Lipan Apaches then moved to the mountains of Mexico and to several of the reservations in New Mexico and Oklahoma. So your tribe has suffered under, you know, sort of bad jurisprudence and law for a very, very long time. This is nothing new, your collision with American law. Uh, What people don't know historically is that during the, uh, the fight for the Republic of Texas, the Native community in Texas, for the very first time in history, came together to fight along with the Texans. And so we had a big part of the battle, because you don't read that in history. Uh, Sam Houston promised us several allotments of land. They didn't call them reservations. He said, this is going to be your land, and you're going to live there in peace and harmony for the rest of your lives. When Lamarck became president, uh, or uh, yeah, president of the Republic, he was very anti-Native. He, he thought the only good Indian was a dead Indian. So he established all these laws uh, to annihilate the, the Native American community, specifically the Lipan Apaches, which would play more habit, uh, you know, as, the, as our lands went away and our hunting grounds went away, there a lot of times we had to, you know, do things that, to survive, just whatever it took to survive. Um, but those laws, sad, sad enough, were on the books up to about 1995. So up to 1995, it was not illegal in the state of Texas to kill an Indian or to kill an Apache. Unbelievable. And, you know, part of the history of this country is as a stain, and we know those two big stains, and one of them was slavery, and the other was our treatment of Native, Native Americans. And, and Robert, you're, something else was really interesting that crossed the transom, and then again, we're going to get on the other side of this interview into the law, but we always like to connect the human beings to the law. And you're a pastor, and, and, and that's fascinating, because from my last estimation, less than 5% of American Indians are Christian. Talk about that. Right. That's fascinating. Well, uh, the reason for the lack of Christianity or conversion is because we carry this history, like you said earlier, this history of abuse. Not so much the slave aspect, but the abuse aspect where, you know, the land was taken, the language was destroyed, cultures were taken away. And the whole concept that natives had no souls, and because we had no souls, we were not worth saving. That's why they put us under the protection of the Department of Interior. The Department of Interior is what, na- is what governs the natural world, where we're yep. part of the natural, we're no better than animals. So, so that's why, in many ways, the laws established by the Department of Interior for Native people can contradict the Constitution, but it really doesn't matter because we don't fall under the protection of the Constitution. We fall under the protection of the laws established by 
the uh, by the Department of Interior. That's fascinating. And the Department of Interior almost treats the the people as if they're members of a zoo, and it's exactly. it's, it's, it's tragic. And when we come back, we're talking to Pastor Robert Soto, a member of the Lipan Apache Tribe of Texas. And on the other half of this interview, we're going to go to uh, Luke Goodrich at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, who does such great work protecting people of all faiths uh, of, uh, and their freedom of conscience and their freedom to practice their religion as they see fit. When we come back, Luke Gingrich and Pastor Robert Soto here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all of our work. We're going to go out with some of the music of Pastor Robert Soto just as we had began this segment. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to the music of Pastor Robert Soto, member of the Lipan Apache Tribe of Texas. And in a minute, we'll be talking to Luke Goodrich of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And let's set up the scene now, because we know a little of the background. But, uh, Pastor, correct me if I'm, I'm right here. I'm going to just rip through what happened. An undercover federal agent basically infiltrates one of the powwows that you're conducting and stops it when he noticed that you and other American Indians in, are in possession of eagle feathers, which we touched on just a little bit uh, earlier. Um, he confiscated your 42 feathers, which had been passed down from generation to generation. These were not new feathers. This isn't from a re- recently killed eagle. And unless signed papers abandoning them, you faced criminal prosecution. And by the way, the agent claimed that he was enforcing the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, uh, and this is where it gets interesting. The federal agent Alejandro Rodriguez told the Houston Chronicle, quote, they claim they're Indian, but they're not recognized by the government. That's like you or I, just because our great-grandmother was Native American, that get, doesn't give us the right to possess these protected species. Did I about get that right, Pastor? Just about. But there were actually 50 feathers, not 40, 42 or 44. Um, and, and, and the whole process actually started almost like in October, but the, the paperwork didn't go through with sufficient time. So they said, that's okay, we can go to the spring powwow. They have a second one. And so, yeah, so that's pretty much what happened. Uh, I, I think there was more than one agent, because after all, one had to hold the camera and the other one had to post, you know, for those pictures. But that was just about it. So now yeah. you're, you're in a scrape with the federal law, and thank goodness, in comes the, 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 the man on the, on the white horse, and that's the Beckett Fund, and that's Luke Goodrich. And Luke... Tell us about how you hear about this story and what happens next. Well, so this is a really extreme case where the federal government is actually coming into a religious ceremony. You know, the, pow- the powwow is sacred. And it's sort of like if the federal government came into a church service 
and confiscated the communion wine. You know, that's, that's how extreme this, this violation was. And so uh, Robert, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks would just kind of take it lying down, but Robert and his, uh, the fellow members of his congregation weren't going to just take it lying down. They're, they're Lapan Apache warriors. So they went to court. And fortunately, we have some, some laws on the books that say uh, if the government is going to restrict somebody's religious practices, it has to have a really, really good reason for doing that. And here, our argument in court was, you know, the government really had no need to infiltrate the powwow in this way. You know, the government allows hundreds of eagles, if not thousands, to be killed every year for non-religious reasons, Luke. And yet, this, these feathers, as we learned, were passed down from generation to generation. What the heck's really going on here when the, the federales uh, you know, exhibit such muscular uh, intervention? What's really, do you think, going on? Right. As you point out, you know, Robert and his family, they would never lift a finger to harm an eagle. They believe eagles are sacred. So the feathers that Robert and his family and congregation have, these are passed down from generation to generation, uh, never from a killed eagle, but from, you know, eagles that naturally molt feathers in the wild or eagles that are, that are killed naturally. And yet, you know, the government, like you said, allows power companies and wind farms to kill hundreds of eagles every year. They allow museums, scientists, and zoos, and farmers to have eagle feathers and to, to disturb eagles, and yet they won't allow Native Americans to peacefully possess their feathers. And I think what's, what's going on here is just extreme, callous indifference to Native American heritage and to Native American rights. And it was just really unfortunate what the government was trying to yeah, do. I don't think, you know, I think in the end, Luke, this is a sort of a rank bigotry, because I don't think the federales would dare walk into a, a Catholic church or a synagogue or a mosque and do this. There's just zero chance that that would happen. That's my gut. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And it's just so unfortunate. We, it's really history repeating itself, because the federal government so often has disregarded uh, the rights and liberties of Native Americans. And, and here it is, you know, you'd think we were still back in the 18th or 19th century, and yet uh, the government is still trampling over the rights of Native Americans. And let's uh, talk about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, because it was this bill, which, by the way, was signed by a Democrat President Bill Clinton, and there was an evenly divided Congress, and it passed almost unanimously. How did this particular piece of legislation help you and Pastor Robert and his tribe uh, get victory? So the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a pretty simple law, and it basically says if the government is going to burden or restrict somebody's religious practices, it has to have an extremely good reason for doing so, and it has to you know, try to pursue that reason in a, in a way that uh, restricts religion as, as little as possible. And so in this case, the government claimed that its really, really important interest was protecting eagle populations. The government says, you know, hey, that eagle is our national symbol. It used to be endangered, even though it is no longer endangered or threatened. And the government said, hey, there's, there's actually a, you know, a risk of people going out and killing eagles for, for religious purposes. But we came back in court and said, wait a minute, you know, you allow hundreds and hundreds of eagles to be killed every year by power companies, and you allow people to possess feathers for all these other sorts of reasons. You, you even allow certain favored 
Native American tribes to possess eagle feathers, and yet you won't allow Robert Soto and his family and his congregation from you know the Lapan Apache tribe of Texas, which by the way has a treaty with the Republic of Texas and with the United States, you won't allow Robert to just possess, peacefully possess feathers for religious purposes. And the court looked at this and, and agreed with us and said, yeah, you're right. The government does not need to be going after Native Americans in this way. And what the government did was wrong. You know, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled in favor of Pastor Soto, relying on the Supreme Court's decision in Hobby Lobby and finding that the federal government failed to justify its restrictions on religious freedom. Pastor Soto, it took you nine years, but you got your feathers back. Talk about what that was like and how you felt when that happened. Well, I, I kind of really felt violated. You know, it's kind of like stuff that we've known in our lives, a circle, we call it a sacred circle. And it's not that, you know, taboo to go in there because we allow people to go in there, but it's, we have a lot of formalities, a lot of uh, what we call protocol before you can enter the circle. What really bothered me the most was the reason they went into our circle, knowing that it was sacred, uh, was because we violated two federal laws according to the, you know, according to the Department of Interior, and, and that was that we advertised our gathering in the newspaper, and that we, and there was the exchange of money. You know, we we do that in church every Sunday. You bet. <laughs> we advertise our church in the newspapers, and we and we have a collection and the offerings, and 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 I and my thought was, well, why are we being pointed out? You know, why we pointed out, why does the government come into our circle, which we consider sacred, which, not, by the way, it's not just a circle. Uh, they could go to any ceremony or any gathering if they advertised it or there was the exchange of money. That's a, that was the violation of federal law. People say, I don't believe that. I said, I wouldn't believe it either if I didn't hear it from the mouth of the lawyers from the Department of Interior right. <laughs> asking me, you know, was there exchange of money? Uh, did you advertise? You know, and and... Uh, I'm a born again Christian. I've been a pastor. I've been a pastor for thirty, thirty-eight years, I believe, maybe thirty-six, thirty-eight years now. Uh, you know, I've been committed to the Lord all my life, and the, you know, we don't worship the feather. The feather is just part of our worship. It's kind of like we don't worship the piano at, at, at church, you know, or you know, like I told somebody that the, the feather doesn't make us an Indian, just like the cross around my neck doesn't make me a Christian, you like bet. the Star of David doesn't make me a Jew, or Rosary make me a Catholic. All those are symbols of my religious freedom. And and so here the government now is telling me, it, when they say we couldn't have the feathers at the powwow, he was also saying I couldn't use my feathers in our religious services, in our ceremonies, the baby's dedications, weddings, funerals, because all that was violation of federal law. And so it wasn't so much that they were keeping my feathers away from the powwow, but they were keeping my feathers away from who God the Creator created me, a Native person. Yep, and and I love what you said, uh, in, in a, and I'm going to read the quote. This is a victory not just for me and my people, but for all people of faith. If the government can take away my freedom, it can take away yours. We have to stand yeah. together. I wanted to close with you, Luke, because the Beckett Fund, and what I love about the Beckett Fund is, though I think quite a number of the folks there are Christians, uh, what, what I love about Beckett Fund is you're always taking the stand for people of all faiths, and I think that makes you special. Uh, talk about the mission really quickly of the Beckett Fund. you got about a minute. Sure. So, the, like you said, the Beckett Fund defends religious freedom for people of all faiths. And we won the Hobby Lobby case in the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was on behalf of uh, evangelical Christians who owned a family business. Uh, we won the Little Sisters of the Poor case in the Supreme Court, which is on behalf of Catholic nuns who help, help the elderly poor. Uh, we won... 
a case called Holt in the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of a Muslim who wanted to grow a beard. And, and we won Pastor Soto's case on behalf of Native Americans who wanted to possess eagle feathers. And you might think, you know, these four clients have very little in common. And, and when it comes to their actual religious beliefs, there, there are some sharp disagreements there. But the underlying principle is the same, that the government should not dictate to people what they can and can't believe and what religious practices uh, they can and can't engage in, and that we're all better off when we're, when we're free to pursue what we believe to be the truth. So the Beckett Fund is honored to represent Robert and you know, couldn't take any cases unless people were courageous enough to stand up to the government when it was telling them they couldn't practice their religion. Well, Luke, thanks for all you do at the Beckett Fund. We love telling stories of the great work your lawyers do. And my goodness, what a great use of a law degree. And Pastor Robert Soto, thank you for fighting the fight. And uh, thanks for doing all you do. What an interesting story, what a good life, and what a good story about our First Amendment, that the courts are there in the end to protect us from government overreach. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.